Ja, ja, nu går jag. Jag såg oss. Jag älskar. För jag är stryklig. Och jag är strådd. Jag säger. Jag vill jag. Jag såg oss. Nu går jag. Welcome to the 351st of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we'll continue with the South with Scott book by Edward Evans, who was part of Scott's fabled Fatal Journey South. Then we carry on with the mysteries of three John Silence stories. So, let's head to that white continent. Chapter 5. Antarctica. Through the pack ice to land. We sighted our first iceberg in latitude 62 degrees on the evening of Wednesday, December the 7th. Cheetham's squeaky hail came down from aloft and I went to the crow's nest to look at it, and from this time on we passed all kinds of icebergs, from the huge tabular variety to the little weathered, water-worn bergs. Some we steamed quite close to, and they seemed for all the world like great masses of sugar floating in the sea. From latitude 60 to 63 degrees, we saw a fair number of birds, southern fulmers, whale birds, mollyhawks, sooty albatrosses, and occasionally cape pigeons still. Then the brown-backed petrels began to appear, sure precursors of the pack ice. It was in sight right enough the day after the brown-backs were seen. By breakfast time on December the 9th, when nearly in latitude 65 degrees, we were steaming through thin streams of broken pack with flows from 6 to 12 feet across. A few penguins and seals were seen, and by 10am no less than 27 icebergs were in sight. The newcomers to these regions were clustered in little groups on the forecastle and the poop, sketching and painting, hanging over the bows and gleefully watching this lighter stuff being brushed aside by our strong stem. We were passing through pack ice all day, but the ice hereabouts was not close enough nor heavy enough to stop us appreciably. The ship was usually conned by Pennell and myself from the crow's nest, and I took the ship very near one berg for ponting to cinematograph it. We began to see snow petrels with black beaks and pure white bodies, rather resembling doves. Also, we saw great numbers of brown-backed petrels the first day in the pack, whole flights of them resting on the icebergs. The sun was just below the horizon at midnight, and we had a most glorious sunset, which was the first a blazing copper changing to salmon pink and then to purple. The pools of water between the flows caught the reflection. The sea was perfectly still, and every berg and ice flow caught something of that delicate colour. Wilson, of course, was up and about until long after midnight sketching and painting. The Antarctic pack ice lends itself to watercolour work far better than do oils. When conning the ship from up in the crow's nest, one has a glorious view of this great changing ice field, moving through lanes of clear blue water, cannoning into this flow and splitting it with their iron-bound stem, overriding that and gnawing off a twenty-ton lump, gliding south, east, west, through leads of open water, then charging an innocent-looking piece which brings the ship up all standing, astern and then ahead again, screwing and working the wonderful wooden ship steadily southward, until perhaps two huge flows gradually narrow the lane and hold the little lady fast in their frozen grip. This is the time to wait and have a look around. On one side flows the size of a football field all jammed together, 
with their torn-up edges showing their limits and where the pressure is taken. Then three or four bergs carved from some distant barrier, imprisoned a mile or so away, with the evening sun's soft rays casting beautiful shadows about them and kissing their glistening cliff faces. Glancing down from the crow's nest, the ship throws deep shadows over the ice, and while the sun is just below the southern horizon, and still pools of water, still delicate blue and green that no artist can ever do justice to, it is a scene from a fairyland. I loved this part of the voyage, for I was in my element. At odd times during the night, if one can call it night, the crow's nest would have visitors, and hot cocoa would be sent up in covered pots by means of signal halyards. The pack ice was new to all the ship's officers except myself, and they soon got into the way of conning and working through the open leads, and, as time went on, distinguishing the thinner ice from the harder and more dangerous stuff. On December 10th, we stopped the ship and secured her to a heavy flow, from which we took in sufficient ice to make eight tons of fresh water, and whilst doing this, Rennick sounded and obtained bottom in 1,964 fathoms for a minifera and decomposed skeleton unicellular organs, also two pieces of black basic lava. Lily and Nelson took plankton and water bottle samples to about 280 fathoms. A few penguins came round and a good many crab-eater seals were seen. In the afternoon we got underway again and worked for about eight miles through the pack, which was gradually becoming denser. About 2.30pm I saw from the crow's nest four seals on a floe. I slid down a backstay and whilst the officer on watch worked the ship close to them, I got two or three others with all our firearms and shot the lot of them from the forecastle head. We had seal liver for dinner that night. One or two rather turned up their noses at it, but as Scott pointed out, the time would come when seal liver would be a delicacy to dream about. Campbell did not do much conning except in the early morning, as his executive duties kept him well occupied. The polar sledge journey had its attractions, but Campbell's party were to have interesting work and envied by many on board. For reasons which need not here be entered into, Campbell had to abandon the King Edward VII land programme, but in these days his mob were known as the Eastern Party, to consist of the wicked mate Levick and Priestley, with three seamen, Abbott, Browning and Dickerson. Campbell had the face of an angel and the heart of a hornet. With a most refined and innocent smile, he would come up to me and ask whether the Eastern Party could have a small amount of this or that luxury. Of course I would agree, and sure enough Bowers would tell me that Campbell had already appropriated a far greater share than he was ever entitled to of the commodity in question. This happened again and again, but the refined smile was irresistible, and I'm bound to say the wicked mate generally got away with it, for even Bowers, the incomparable, was bowled over by that smile. We crossed the Antarctic Circle on the morning of the 10th, a little dreaming in those happy days that the finest amongst us would never recross it again. We took a number of deep-sea soundings, several of over 2,000 fathoms on this first southward voyage. Rennick showed himself very expert with the deep-sea gear, and got his soundings far more easily than we had ever done in the discovery and morning days. We were rather unfortunate as regards the pack ice met with, and must have passed through 400 miles of it from north to south. On my two previous voyages, we had easier conditions altogether, 
and then it had not mattered. But with all these dogs and ponies cooped up and losing condition with the Terra Nova eating coal and sixty hungry men scoffing enormous meals, we did not seem to be doing much or getting on with the show. It was, of course, nobody's fault, but our patience was sorely tried. We made frequent stops in the pack ice, even letting fires go out and furling sail, and sometimes the ice would be all jammed up so that not for a water hole was visible. This condition would continue for days. Then, for no apparent reason, leads would suddenly appear and black water skies would tempt us to raise steam again. Scott himself showed an admirable patience, for the rest of us had something to occupy our time with. Pennell and I, for instance, were constantly taking sights and working them out to find our position, and also to get the set and drift of the current. Then there were the magnetic observations to be taken on board and out on the ice away from the busy influence of the ship, such as it was. Simpson had heaps to busy himself with, and Ponting was there also, and everywhere with his camera and cinematograph machine. Had it not been for our anxiety to make southward progress, the time would have passed pleasantly enough, especially in the fine weather. Days came when we could go out on the flow and exercise on ski, and Gran zealously looked to all our requirements in this direction. December the 11th witnessed the extraordinary sight of our company standing bareheaded on deck, whilst Captain Scott performed divine service. Two hymns were sung which broke strangely the great white silence. The weather was against us this day, and in that we had snow, and thaw, and actual rain, but we could not complain on the score of weather conditions generally. Practically all the ship's company exercised on the flows while we remained fast frozen. Next day there was some slight loosening of the pack and we tried sailing through it and managed half a degree southward in the 48 hours. We got along a few miles here and there, but when ice conditions continued favourable for making any serious advance, it was better to light up and push our way onward with all the power we could command. We got some heavy bumps on the 13th of December and all this hammering was not doing the ship much good. Since I was unable to make southing then at a greater rate than one mile an hour, we let the fires right out, and prepared, as Captain Scott said, to wait till the clouds roll by. For the next few days there was not much doing, nor did we experience such pleasant weather. Constant visits were made to the crow's nest in search of a way through. December 16th and 17th were two very grey days with fresh wind, snow and some sleet. Affectionate memories of Captain Colbeck and the little relief ship morning came back when the wind soft and whistled through the rigging. This sound is most uncanny, and the ice always seemed to exaggerate any noise. I hated the overcast days in the pack. It was bitterly cold in the crow's nest, however much one put on then and water skies often turned out to be nimbus clouds after we had laboured and cannoned towards them. The light, too, tired and strained one's eyes, far more than on a clear day. When two hundred miles into the pack, the ice varied surprisingly. We would be passing through ice a few inches thick, and then suddenly great flows four feet thick above the water and twelve to fifteen feet would be encountered. December 18th saw us steaming through tremendous leads of open water. A very funny occurrence was witnessed in the evening when the wash of the ship turned a flow over under water, and on its floating back a fish was left stranded. It was a funny little creature, 
nine inches in length, a species of Nothernia. Several snow pectorals and a skewer gull made attempts to secure the fish, but the afterguard kept up such a chorus of cheers, hoots and howls that the birds were scared away until one of us secured the fish from the flow. Early on the 19th, we passed close to a large iceberg which had a shelving beach like an island. We began to make better progress to the south-westward and worked into a series of open leads. We came across our first emperor penguin, a young one and two sea leopards, besides crab-eater seals, many penguins, some giant pectorals, and a Wilson petrel. That afternoon, tremendous pieces of ice were passed that were absolutely solid and regular flows, being ten to twelve feet above the water and, as far as one could judge, about fifty below. The water here was beautifully clear. We'd now reached latitude sixty-eight degrees, and, as penguins were plentiful, Archer and Clissold, the cooks, made us penguin stews and hooshes to eke out our fresh provisions. Concerning the penguins, they frequently came and inspected the ship. One day Wilson and I chased some, but they continually kept just out of reach, and then Uncle Bill lay down on the snow, and when one, out of curiosity, came up to him, he grabbed it by the leg and brought it to the ship, protesting violently, for all the world like a little old man in a dinner jacket. Atkinson and Wilson found a new kind of tapeworm in this penguin, with a head like a propeller. This worm has since been named after one of us. We were now down to 300 tonnes of coal, some of which had perforce to be landed, in addition to the 30 tonnes of patent fuel which were under the forward stores. I had no idea that Captain Scott could be so patient. He put on the best face of everything, although he certainly was disappointed in the Terra Nova and her steaming capacity. He could not well have been otherwise when comparing her with his beloved discovery. Whilst in the pack, our leader spent his time in getting hold of more detailed parts of our scientific programme, and mildly tying the scientists into knots. We had some good views of whales in the pack. Whenever a whale was sighted, Wilson was called to identify it unless it proved to belong to one of the more common species. We saw Sibbald's whale, rorquals and many killer whales, but no right whales were properly identified this trip. I very much wanted to show Scott the island we had discovered in the first Antarctic relief expedition and named after him, but when in its vicinity snow squalls and low visibility prevented this. On the 22nd, Bowers, Wright, Griffith, Taylor and myself chased a lot of young penguins on the ice and secured nine for our Christmas dinner. We spent a very pleasant Christmas this year, devoting our attention to food. We commenced the day with kidneys from our frozen meat store. Captain Scott conducted the Christmas church service, and all hands attended since we had no steam up and were fast held in the pack. The wardroom was decorated with our sledge flags, and a new blue tablecloth generally brightened up our mess. We had fresh mutton for lunch, and the seamen had their Christmas dinner at this time. The afterguard dined at 6.30 on fresh penguin, roast beef, plum pudding, mince pies, asparagus, and while we had champagne, port and liquors to drink to an enormous box of Fry's fancy chocolates for dessert. This mortal gorge was followed by a sing-song lasting until midnight, nearly everyone, even the most modest, contributing. Around the Christmas days we made but a insignificant headway, only achieving 31 miles in the best part of a week. 
but on the 29th the floes became thin and the ice showed signs of recent formation, though intermingled with heavier flows of old and rotten ice. There was much diatocomysia in these rotten flows. About 2.40am the ship broke through into a lead of open water six miles in length. I spent the middle watch in the crow's nest, Bowers being up there with me talking over the expedition, his future and mine. He was a wonderful watch companion, especially when he got on to his favourite subject, India. He had some good tales to tell of the Persian Gulf, of days and weeks spent boat cruising, of attacks made on gun-running dows and kindred adventures. He told me that one dow was boarded whilst he was up in the Gulf, when the Arabs, waiting until most of the boat's crew of blue jackets were on board, suddenly let go the halyards of their great sail and let it crash down over the lot, the boom breaking many heads and the sail burying our seamen, whilst the Arabs got to work and practically scuppered the crowd. Soon after 4am, I went below and turned in, confident that we were nearing the southern extreme of the pack. Captain Scott awoke when I went into the cabin, pleased at the prospect. But after so many adverse ice conditions, he shook his head, unwilling to believe that we should get clear yet a while. I bet him ten sardine sandwiches that we should be out of the pack by noon on the 30th, and when I turned out at eight o'clock, I was delighted to find the ship steaming through thin flows and pressing into a series of great open water leads. By 6pm on the 29th, a strong breeze was blowing and snow was falling, and we were punching along under steam and sail. Sure enough, we got out of the pack early on the 30th, and, cracking on all our canvas, were soon doing eight knots with a following wind. Later in the day the wind headed us, with driving snow, fine rain, and, unfortunately, a considerable head swell. This caused the ship to pitch so badly that the ponies began to give trouble again. Oates asked for the speed to be reduced, but we got over this by setting fore and aft sails, and keeping the ship head three or four points off the wind. New Year's Eve gave us another anxious time, for we encountered a hard blow from the south-south-east. It was necessary to heave the ship too most of the day under bare poles, with the engines just jogging to keep the swell on her bow. A thin line of pack ice was sighted in the morning, and this turned out to be quite a blessing in disguise, for I took the ship close to the edge of it and skirted along to leeward. The ice formed a natural breakwater and dampened the swell most effectually. The sea and the swell in the open would have been too much for the ponies as it must be remembered that they had been in their stalls on board for five weeks. We had now reached the continental shelf. The depth of water had changed from 1,111 fathoms on the 30th to 180 fathoms this day. The biologists took advantage of our jogging along in the open water to trawl, but very few specimens were obtained. At midnight, the youth of the town made the devil of a din by striking sixteen bells, blowing whistles on the siren, hooting with the foghorn, cheering and singing. What children we were, but what matter? And now it's time to listen to some silence. And personal experiences of your own, Colonel Rage, asked John Silence earnestly, his manner showing the greatest possible interest and sympathy. The soldier gave an almost imperceptible start. He looked distinctly uncomfortable. Nothing, I think, he said slowly. Nothing, um, I should like to reply on. I mean, I have the right to speak of perhaps yet. 
his mouth closed with a snap. Dr. Silence, after waiting a little to see if he would add to his reply, did not seek to press him on the point. Well, he resumed presently, and as though he would speak contemptuously, yet dared not, this sort of thing has gone on at intervals ever since. It spreads like wildfire, of course, mysterious chatter of all kind, and people began trespassing all over the estate, coming to see the wood, and making themselves a general nuisance. Notices of man-traps and spring-guns only seem to increase their persistence. And think of it, he snorted, some local research society actually wrote and asked permission for one of their members to spend a night in the wood. Bolder fools who didn't write for leave came and took away bits of bark from the trees and gave them to clairvoyance, who invented in their turn a further batch of tales. There was simply no end to it all. Most distressing and annoying, I can well believe, interposed the doctor. Then suddenly the phenomena ceased, as mysteriously as they had begun, and the interest flagged. The tales stopped. People got interested in something else. It all seemed to die out. This was last July. I can tell you exactly, for I've kept a diary, more or less, of what happened. Ah, interposed the doctor. But now, quite recently, within the past three weeks, it's all revived again, with a rush, with a kind of furious attack, so to speak. It has really become unbearable. You may imagine what it means, and the general state of affairs, when I say that the possibility of leaving has occurred to me. Incendiarism? suggested Dr. Silence, half under his breath, but not so low that Colonel Rage did not hear him. Why, Jove, sir, you take the very words out of my mouth, exclaimed the astonished man, glancing from the doctor to me and from me to the doctor, and rattling the money in his pocket, as though some explanation of my friend's divining powers were to be found that way. It's only that you're thinking very vividly, the doctor said quietly and your thoughts form pictures in my mind before you utter them. It's merely a little elementary thought-reading. His intention, I saw, was not to perplex the good man, but to impress him with his powers, so as to ensure obedience later. Good Lord! I had no idea! He did not finish the sentence, and dived again abruptly into his narrative. I did not see anything myself, I must admit, but the stories of independent eyewitnesses were to the effect that lines of light, like streams of thin fire, moved through the woods, and sometimes were seen to shoot out precisely as flames might shoot out, in the direction of this house. There, he exclaimed in a louder voice that made me jump, pointing with a thick finger to the map, where the westerly fringe of the plantation comes up to the end of the lower lawn at the back of the house, where it links onto those dark patches, which are laurel shrubberies, running right up to the back premises. That's where these lights were seen. They passed from the wood to the shrubberies and in this way reached the house itself. Like silent rockets, one man described them, rapid as lightning and exceedingly bright. And this evidence that you spoke of? They actually reached the sides of the house. They've left a mark, a scorching, on the walls, the walls of the laundry building at the other end. You shall see them tomorrow. He pointed to the map to indicate the spot, and then straightened himself and glared about the room, as though he had said something no one could believe and expected a contradiction. Scorched. Just as the faces were, the doctor murmured, 
looking significantly at me. "'Scorched, yes,' repeated the colonel, failing to catch the rest of the sentence in his excitement. There was a prolonged silence in the room, in which I heard the gurgling of the oil in the lamp and the click of the coals and the heavy breathing of our host. The most unwelcome sensations were creeping about my spine, and I wondered whether my companion would scorn me utterly if I asked to sleep on the sofa in his room. It was eleven o'clock, I saw by the clock on the mantelpiece, which crossed the dividing line and were well now into the movement of the adventure. The fight between my interest and my dread became acute, but even if turning back had been possible, I think the interest would have easily gained the day. I have enemies, of course, I heard the colonel's rough voice break into the pause presently, and have discharged a number of servants. It's not that, put in John's silence briefly. You think not? In a sense I'm glad, yet there are some things that can be met and dealt with. He left the sentence unfinished, and looked down at the floor with an expression of grim severity that betrayed a momentary glimpse of his character. This fighting man loathed and abhorred the thought of an enemy he could not see and come to grips with. Presently he moved over and sat down in the chair between us. Something like a sigh escaped him. Dr. Silence said nothing. My sister, of course, is kept in ignorance as far as possible of all of this, he said disconnectedly, and as if talking to himself. But even if she knew, she would find matter-of-fact explanations. I only wish I could. I'm sure they must exist. There came then an interval in the conversation that was very significant. It did not seem a real pause, or the silence a real silence, for both men continued to think so rapidly and strongly that one almost imagined their thoughts clothed themselves in words in the air of the room. I was more than a little keyed up with the strange excitement of all that I heard, but what stimulated my nerves more than anything else was the obvious fact that the doctor was clearly upon the trail of discovery. In his mind at that moment, I believe he had already solved the nature of this perplexing psychical problem. His face was like a mask, and he employed the absolute minimum of gesture and words. All his energies were directed inwards, and by those incalculable methods and processes he had mastered with such infinite patience and study, I felt sure he was already in touch with the forces behind the singular phenomena, and laying his deep plans for bringing them into the open and then effectively dealing with them. Colonel Rage, meanwhile, grew more and more fidgety. From time to time he turned towards my companion as though about to speak, yet always changing his mind at the last moment. Once he went over and opened the door suddenly, apparently to see if anyone were listening at the keyhole, for he disappeared a moment between the two doors and then I heard him open the outer one. He stood there for some seconds and made a noise as though he were sniffing the air like a dog. Then he closed both doors cautiously and came back to the fireplace. A strange excitement seemed growing upon him. Evidently, he was trying to make up his mind to say something that he found it difficult to say. And John's silence, as I rightly judged, was waiting patiently for him to come to his own opportunity and his own way of saying it. At last, he turned and faced us, squaring up his shoulders and stiffening perceptibly. Dr. Silence looked up sympathetically. 
your own experiences help me most, he observed quietly. The fact is, the colonel said, speaking very low, this past week there have been outbreaks of fire in the house itself, three separate outbreaks, and all in my sister's room. Yes, the doctor said, as if this was just what he had expected to hear. Utterly unaccountable, all of them, added the other, and then sat down. I began to understand something of the reason of his excitement. He was realising at last that the natural explanation he had held to all along was becoming impossible, and he hated it. It made him angry. Fortunately, he went on, she was out each time and does not know. But I have made her sleep now in a room on the ground floor. A wise precaution, the doctor said simply. He asked one or two questions. The fires had started in the curtains, once by the window and once by the bed. A third time smoke had been discovered by the maid coming from the cupboard, and it was found that Miss Rage's clothes, hanging on the hooks, were smouldering. The doctor listened attentively, but made no comment. And now can you tell me, he said presently, what your own feeling about it is, your general impression? It sounds foolish to say so, replied the soldier after a moment's hesitation. But I feel exactly as I have often felt on active service in my Indian campaigns, just as if the house and all in it were in a state of siege, as though a concealed enemy were encamped about us, in ambush somewhere. He uttered a soft, nervous laugh, as if the next sign of smoke would precipitate a panic, a dreadful panic. The picture came before me of the night shadowing the house, and the twisted pine trees he had described crowding about it, concealing some powerful enemy. And glancing at the resolute face and the figure of the old soldier forced at length to his confession, I understood something of all he had been through before he sought the assistance of John Silence. And tomorrow, unless I'm mistaken, is full moon, said the doctor suddenly, watching the other's face for the effect of his apparently careless words. Colonel Rage gave an uncontrollable start, and his face for the first time showed unmistakable pallor. What in the world? he began, his lip quivering. Only that I'm beginning to see light in this extraordinary affair, returned the other calmly. And if my theory is correct, each month when the moon is at the full should witness an increase in the activity of this phenomena. I don't see the connection, Colonel Rage answered almost savagely, but I'm bound to say my diary bears you out. He wore the most puzzled expression that I've ever seen upon an honest face, but he abhorred this additional corroboration of an explanation that perplexed him. I confess, he repeated, I cannot see the connection. Why should you? said the doctor with his first laugh that evening. He got up and hung the map upon the wall again. But I do, because these things are my special study. And let me add that I have yet to come across a problem that is not natural and has not a natural explanation. It's merely a question of how much one knows and admits. Colonel Rage eyed him with a new and curious respect in his face. But his feelings were soothed. Moreover, the doctor's laugh and change of manner came as a relief to all and broke the spell of the grave suspense that had held us so long. 
we all rose and stretched our limbs and took little walks about the room. "'I am glad, Dr. Silence, if you'll allow me to say so, that you're here,' he said simply. "'Very glad indeed. And now I fear I have kept you both up very late, with a glance to include me, for you must be tired and ready for your beds. I've told you all there is to tell,' he added, "'and tomorrow you must feel perfectly free to take any steps you think necessary.' The end was abrupt, yet natural, for there was nothing more to say, and neither of the men talked for mere talking's sake. Out in the cold and chilly hall he lit our candles and took us upstairs. The house was at rest and still, everyone asleep. We moved softly. Through the windows on the stairs we saw the moonlight falling across the lawn, throwing deep shadows. The nearer pine trees were just visible in the distance, a wall of impenetrable blackness. Our host came for a moment to our rooms to see that we had everything. He pointed to a coil of strong rope lying beside the window, fastened to the wall by means of an iron ring. Evidently, it had been recently put in. I don't think we shall need it, Dr. Silence said with a smile. I trust not, replied our host gravely. I sleep quite close to you across the landing, he whispered, pointing to his door. And if, if you want anything in the night, you'll know where to find me. He wished us pleasant dreams and disappeared down the passage into his room, shading the candle with his big muscular hand from the draughts. John Silence stopped me a moment before I went. "'You know what it is?' I asked, with an excitement that even overcame my weariness. "'Yes,' he said. "'I'm almost sure. And you?' "'Not the smallest of notions.' He looked disappointed, but not half as disappointed as I felt. Egypt, he whispered. Egypt. Nothing happened to disturb me in the night. Nothing, that is, except a nightmare in which Colonel Rage chased me amid the thin streaks of fire, and his sister always prevented my escape by suddenly rising up out of the ground in her chair, dead. The deep baying of the dogs woke me once, just before the dawn. It must have been, for I saw the window frame against the sky. There was a flash of lightning, too, I thought, as I turned over in my bed. And it was warm. For October it was oppressively warm. It was after eleven o'clock when our host suggested going out with the guns, these we understood being a somewhat thin disguise for our true purpose. Personally, I was glad to be in the open air, for the atmosphere of the house was heavy with presentiment. The sense of impending disaster hung over all. Fear stalked the passages and lurked in the corners of every room. It was a house haunted, but really haunted, not by some vague shadow of the dead, but by a definite though incalculable influence that was actively alive and dangerous. At the least smell of smoke the entire household quivered. An odour of burning, I was convinced, would paralyse all the inmates for the servants, though professedly ignorant by the master's unspoken orders, yet shared that common dread, and the hideous uncertainty joined with this display of so spiteful and calculated a spirit of malignity provided a kind of black doom that draped not only the walls, but also the minds of the people living within them. Only the bright and cheerful vision of old Miss Rage being pushed about the house in her noiseless chair, chatting and nodding briskly to everyone she met, 
prevented us from giving way entirely to the depression which governed the majority. The sight of her was like a gleam of sunshine through the depths of some ill-omened wood, and just as we went out I saw her being wheeled along by her attendant into the sunshine of the back lawn, and caught her cheery smile as she turned her head and wished us good sport. The morning was October at its best. Sunshine glistened on a dew-drenched grass, and on leaves turned golden red. The dainty messengers of coming hoarfrost were already in the air. A search for permanent winter quarters. From the wide moors that everywhere swept up against the sky, like a purple sea splashed by the occasional grey of rocky clefts, there stole down the cool and perfumed wind of the west, and the keen taste of the sea ran through all like a master flavour, borne over the spaces perhaps by the seagulls that cried and circled high in the air. But our host took little interest in this sparkling beauty, and had no thought of showing off the scenery of his property. His mind was otherwise intent, and for that matter so were our own. These bleak moors and hills stretch unbroken for hours, he said with a sweep of the hand. And over there, some four miles, pointing in another direction, lies Silicon Bay, a long swampy inlet of the sea, haunted by myriads of seabirds. On the other side of the house are the plantations and pine woods. I thought we'd get the docks and go first to the twelve-acre wood I told you about last night. It's quite near. We found the dogs in the stable and I recalled the deep baying of the night when a fine bloodhound on two Great Danes leapt out to greet us. Singular companions for guns, I thought to myself as we struck out across the fields, and the great creatures bounded and ran beside us nose to the ground. The conversation was scanty. John Silence's grave face did not encourage talk. He wore the expression I knew well, that look of earnest solitude which meant that his whole being was deeply absorbed and preoccupied. Frightened I had never seen him, but anxious often. It always moved me to witness it, and he was anxious now. On the way back you shall see the laundry building, Colonel Rage observed shortly, for he too found little to say. We shall attract less attention then. Yet not all the crisp beauty of the morning seemed able to dispel the feelings of uneasy dread that gathered increasingly about our minds as we went. In a very few minutes a clump of pine trees concealed the house from view, and we found ourselves on the outskirts of a densely grown plantation of conifers. Colonel Rage stopped abruptly and, producing a map from his pocket, explained once more very briefly its position with regard to the house. He showed how it ran almost to the walls of the laundry building, though at the moment beyond our actual view, and pointed to the windows of his sister's bedroom where the fires had been. The room, now empty, looked straight on to the wood. Then, glancing nervously about him, and calling the dogs to heel, he proposed that we should enter the plantation, and make as thorough an examination of it as we thought worthwhile. The dogs, he thought, might perhaps be persuaded to accompany us a little way, and he pointed to where they cowered at his feet, but he doubted they would come. Neither voice nor whip will get them very far, I'm afraid, he said, I know by experience. If you have no objection, replied Dr. Silence with decision, and speaking almost for the first time, we will make our examination alone, Mr. Hubbard and myself. It will be best so. His tone was absolutely final, 
and the colonel acquiesced so politely that even a less intuitive man than myself must have seen that he was genuinely relieved. "'You doubtless have good reason,' he said. "'Merely that I wish to obtain my impressions uncoloured. This delicate clue I'm working on might be so easily blurred by the thought currents of another mind with strongly preconceived ideas.' "'Perfectly. I understand,' rejoined the soldier, though with an expression of countenance that plainly contradicted his words. "'Then I will wait here with the docks, and will come have a look at the laundry on the way home.' I turned once to look back as we clambered over the low stone wall built by the late owner, and saw his straight soldierly figure standing in the sunlit field watching us with a curiously intent look on his face. There was something to me incongruous, yet distinctly pathetic, in the man's efforts to meet all far-fetched explanations of the mystery with contempt, and at the same time in his stolid, unswerving investigation of it all. He nodded at me, and made a gesture of farewell with his hand. That picture of him, standing in the sunshine with his big dogs, steadily watching us, remains with me to this day. And that's all for today except to remind you of my Patreon account where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a naval history on the War of 1812, also Starborn, a science fiction novel by Andre Norton, and the final volume of Charles Oman's History of the Peninsula War. If that sounds interesting, please go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. So, until next time.